0: This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. The first reading is from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan. do not put the lord your god to the to the test when the devil had finished all this tempting he left him until an opportune time this is the word of the lord god.
1: well our second reading today is from the book of romans and we'll be reading chapter 5 verses 12 to 21. It was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses, and brought justification. For if, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through the one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. That just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that justice in reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness, to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. If we keep that passage open in front
2: of you, uh, or open your Bible to Romans chapter five, and you should have got the the uh, order of service uh, sorry the uh, sermon outline as you came in the order of service as well and let's pray for god's help almighty god we thank you for your holy word may it be a lantern to our feet a light to our paths and strength to our lives in the name of your son jesus christ our lord amen it was the best of times it was at 8 o'clock, they knew that. Everybody knew that. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. And that is, of course, the beginning to Charles Dickens's famous novel, A Tale of Two Cities. The two cities of the title, at least at first blush, are Paris in the time of the French Revolution, and the apparently far more peaceful London. London is the place of peace and tranquility, far from the terrors of the revolution, including the cruelty of the world's most savage knitter, Madame Defarge. But as the story goes on, the neat contrast crumbles. Dickens reminds us that London's own streets have run with blood, too. The real contrast, then, is between the city or the domain of hatred and violence and the city or domain of love and kindness and grace. These cities are not geographical. The novel climaxes when one man, the lawyer Sidney Carton, in an act of Christ-like grace, sacrifices himself as a substitute to the guillotine to save another man. Charles Dunne. Now, in our passage today, Paul also makes a comparison between two cities or domains. We might even say between two races, two humanities. The domain of Adam on the one hand and the domain of Christ on the other. Now, there is a similarity between them in that one man represents them both. But the city of Adam is a terrible place. There we find sin and death and condemnation. Yet over in the city of Christ, things are very different. In Christ, who, like Sidney Carton, offered himself to death in our place, we have a place where grace reigns. And there we see life and justification and freedom. What Paul wants to tell us is that if we're in Christ then we've changed cities, we've changed domains, we've been busted out of Adam, and we now live in Christ. And things are very, very different in this new place. But first, in order to tell us where we've arrived, Paul tells us where we've come from. And so you remember from back in chapter 1 and 2 of the book of Romans how he's told us about humankind and sin, sin he says is both universal and inescapable it's something we all have in common all have sinned remember he says it again and again all have sinned there is no one righteous not even one all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god and so all die condemned to be in adam is to be in a damnable state and so in verse 12 of chapter 5 he starts to recap this story Although verse 12 is the start of a sentence that he never quite finishes. So you'll see there's a dash there because Paul, I can imagine him dictating and he kind, of, he kind of thinks, oh, I've got to kind of cover some things off before I get back to that thought. So verse 12 kind of hangs there until he kind of picks it up down in verse 18 or so. It's the beginning of a sentence he, he doesn't quite finish. But he wants to say there, how did sin enter the world? Well, Genesis tells us that Adam's disobedience opened the door for sin and that as a consequence the human race was destined for death because all sinned. Now the evidence of our eyes is plain to see all people do sin and all people do indeed die. As G.K. Chesterton once said, original sin is the only doctrine that's been empirically validated by 2,000 years of human history. But Paul is making more, of an obs- more than an observation of how things are in these verses. People have often complained to me about Adam. Why should the rest of us bear the consequences of his stuff up? Why, because this idiot opened the door, do the rest of us have to put up with the consequences of sin and death in the human realm? What if we had better representatives than Adam and Eve in the garden? And at that point, we sound like people in the pub complaining about the wallabies, although apparently we don't have to complain about them this weekend, or about a corrupt politician. You know, we just don't have a good enough representative there. But when Paul says, because all sinned, it's true not simply in the sense that he's meant it before, that there's something inevitable about our sin. We all do, in fact, sin. He means that we all sinned in Adam. Adam's sin was ours. We were represented in that moment by Adam and when he, st- when he sinned, it was as if we all sinned. His sin is imputed to us all. Which means that we as human beings start already on the wrong side of the ledger. We're not born as clean slates, but born into Adam. We inherit Adam's nature. We follow his example. We rehearse the fatal story of Eden. And alongside him we stand condemned. Now, we baptise babies here at at St Marks, and in fact, some of you may have been baptised as babies here, and some of you may have had your your babies baptised here. It's often a surprise to the parents when I explain to them that this isn't just a thanksgiving ceremony for their beautiful baby. It's a washing of their child, because like all human beings, their child needs a spiritual bath now when it's the second child and they already have a three or four year old they tend to kind of agree that's needed but not on the first child the child already needs the spiritual gift of rebirth they are in adam but they need to be in christ even before they've uttered a word indeed this is why we baptize helpless babies who seem so innocent to us we're praying that indeed They will be in Christ, that God will, by his Spirit, give them rebirth, a new birth, make them a new person. Now, Paul has to break off this thought to do a bit of backfilling in verses 13 to 14. To illustrate how universal sin is, he shows that it's not as if sin only came into the world when the law of Moses was introduced and shone a light on it. Indeed, he says, the law of Moses was a bit like the ultraviolet light that crime scene investigators use to find blood stains you know they turn off the normal lights they put the ultraviolet light on and you see how disgusting your hotel room is and you see where the kind of the body lay and there's the blood stain even where there weren't direct commands from god enough was known from creation itself that human beings everywhere could be held responsible for sin and so death reigned everywhere the city of Adam, from the beginning, was ruled by death. But there is another realm, and things are very different there. We see this in verses 15 to 17, where Paul contrasts the two humanities, the two realms, Adam and Christ, the trespass and the gift. This is the showdown, Adam v. Christ. What's it going to look like? But Paul says, the gift in Christ is nothing like the trespass of Adam. How is it different? Well, Paul's got three ways of contrasting the two realms here. Christ is more certain. Christ is better. I almost wrote betterer. But he's better and he's more abundant. He's certain, he's better, and he's more abundant. So first of all, he says in verse 15, If the many died by the trespass of the one man, How much more, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? What's the difference? We can certainly see how many have died through Adam's sin. That's tangible to us. That's a certainty we can see all around us. But how much more certain is it that God's grace comes through the second man, Jesus Christ? who rose from the dead, the one for many pattern, that one man sinned, therefore many sinned and died, if it works there, how much more surely will it work for the second man? It's more certain and it's better as well. That's what we see in verse 16, where he says that the results are just of a completely different quality. What was the inevitable consequence of Adam's sin? Judgment and condemnation came to all. And that followed just one sin. But after many, many sins, by grace, God gave us his free gift in Jesus Christ. And now we have not condemnation, but it's opposite, justification. What we earned in Adam was condemnation. But what we are given in Christ is justification, where there is no condemnation Forgiveness, a new innocence, you might say. It's better because it has a greater power, doesn't it? It's extraordinary. Just just one sin trapped us all. And that's a terrible effect. But even though sins spread like a universal pandemic, the cure is greater than the disease. It came after many trespasses to overturn them by God's free gift. And it's more abundant and life-giving than sin, too. Remember, it's more certain. It's better in what it achieves. And it's just more abundant. That's verse 17. Death reigned because of one man. And if that is so, how much more will overflow the provision of grace and righteousness leading to life in Jesus Christ? How much more expansive is the gift of God in Jesus Christ? Notice, too, that in Adam, it's death that reigns. Adam was commissioned by God, you might remember back in the first chapters of Genesis, to have dominion over the earth. But in his sin, Adam was dethroned, and instead, death rules in the city of Adam, along with its partner, sin. They are what rule. But look at the contrast here. What is the how much more? Who reigns in this new realm? What does he say? How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Under the reign of death, we should have have ruled, right? But now we are helpless and hopeless. As a funeral director once said to me, everyone's a client. But in Christ we reign in life we are rehumanized you might say made rulers with Christ by the super abundant gifts of grace and righteousness as john stott writes we become it's extraordinary isn't it we we become kings sharing the kingship of Christ with even death under our feet now and one day to be destroyed it's striking, isn't it? We've lost in Adam our dignity and our agency. Our humanity is much less than it should be. Sin and death dehumanize. And yet, here, we are given back these things. They are restored by God's precious gift, by his superabundant generosity. How much dignity and agency we now have. We're no longer the hapless victims of death we're now co-rulers with christ in life itself now free to live the lives we were made to live and then paul finally gets back to that sentence that he started way back in verse 12. there is a comparison to be made between the two realms that are so essentially unlike we've seen how different they are now we see perhaps that they are similar if we've been saying If Adam, then now so much more Christ, in verse 15 to 17, we move to uh, just as Adam, so also Christ logic in these verses, verses 18 to 21. There's a pattern that they share. One act by one human being has a consequence for many human beings. The pattern is the same, but the results are very different. The condemnation of all people flowed from Adam's one trespass. What followed from Jesus Christ's obedience in going to the cross? Justification and life, the many being made righteous. That's an extraordinary reversal of the original verdict, isn't it? An overturning of what stands against us. Now, just as a sideline, I don't think Paul here assumes that all people will eventually be saved. But he does have an expansive vision of the grace of God. The doors of heaven are wide open. God's grace will flow to the many. It will include people of all kinds. In fact, that's one of the points of the whole letter to to the Romans, That it won't just be jews but it'll also be gentiles it won't just be gentiles it'll also be jews there is plenty of space in god's kingdom the gift of god will abundantly flow to many the kingdom of christ contains vast multitudes unfathomable remember the promise to abraham was that his descendants would be as many as the stars in the sky which means we cannot be content with a narrowly tribal vision of the gospel. We cannot imagine that God's kingdom is like a kind of shrinking bowling club, nobody really wanting to join and everyone in this tiny little holy huddle. It cannot be the people of God as we imagine it. Now, this change of state could not be achieved by the law. So Paul returns there in verse 20. In fact, the law did not halt sin, but displays it and reveals it. We cannot move from Adam to Christ simply by trying harder or by lifting our moral game. But at every point, grace outflanks sin. It has a greater power. Sin and its partner, death, might have a power that overwhelms us, but grace's power is just greater. How much more, he keeps saying. Wherever sin increased... Grace's power was even more abundant, more fertile, more glorious, more powerful. Wherever sin spread, the opportunity for God to display his glory by showing grace and mercy spread even more powerfully. Now I remember, I I don't know if you, I mean you will remember playing rock, paper, scissors as a kid. I mean you might still use that game to make business decisions and all sorts of things. You know, rock, paper, scissors. You know the system. Um, I, was playing, I was playing this game in primary school with another kid, and the game is designed so that every hand gesture, uh, that's the scissors, that's the paper, that's the rock, right? Every hand gesture is beatable by some other gesture. I mean, everyone knows that. Uh, so I'm playing the game with this kid, and uh, he starts losing. And so he pulls out Volcano! See, volcano beats everything, he says. You know, beats rock, paper and scissors. That just kind of sweeps it all away with lava. Grace is Christ's volcano. If our enemy is great, and it is, then the grace of God through Jesus Christ is even greater. See how Paul uses in verse 21, he uses the word rains again. Just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign. Three times he uses the word reign of the terrible, dark, mordor-like forces of sin and death that have such a stranglehold on human life. But now he uses it again, this time to talk about the reign of grace. In Jesus Christ, grace reigns. Through grace comes righteousness and eternal life and a new freedom to live as we were made to live. To be the human beings we were made to be. And if by faith you've received the gift of God in Jesus Christ, then that's you. That's you. You've moved. You've changed cities. You're now living in Christ. And in Adam no longer. What does this matter? It matters because sin and death loom so large over us. They seem to be such dominant and unconquerable powers. They seem to present such a vast and impenetrable wall, a wall through which we cannot see, a wall we cannot climb or cannot walk around. Last week we heard how Paul addresses our hope in the face of suffering. The grace of God in Jesus Christ is a resurrection power which transforms even our experience of suffering from a defeated sense of despair into hope. A hope that does not disappoint us. The effects of sin and death may indeed be grinding you down this morning. Perhaps you cannot see away past your overwhelming feelings of shame and guilt about who you are, about the regrets that bother you, that torment you in the dead of night. It could be that you are in the grip of an addiction that you have no power to beat, that you just don't feel like you have the human strength to conquer. Or it could be that the impact of the evil of others has deeply scarred you. How can we possibly find healing and freedom? Who will free us? from this curse but in Jesus Christ there is a new regime by faith however tiny and doubting we've taken up residence in a new city a city of grace and in this city everything smells different everything it's just a different atmosphere the rules are different it's a place of abundant and new life a place beyond condemnation where there is true freedom and absolute love. And what we need to hear and to internalize is that the overflowing and undeserved gift of God to us in Jesus Christ is more than we could ever imagine. And I have to say, this is a difficult truth for even people who've been a Christian for a long time to internalize and make real. We still walk around with the old habits, with the old mindset, thinking that sin and death have won, but they have not. We now live in a new place. God's grace has no limits. The American novelist Marilyn Robinson puts it this way, I experience religious dread, she says, whenever I find myself thinking that I know the limits of God's grace since I am utterly certain that grace exceeds any imagination that a human being might have of it. God does, after all, so love the world. We are habituated to Adam's world, his limited world, of sin and guilt and death, such that we find it takes deliberate effort to remind ourselves that we now live in the unlimited realm of overflowing, abundant grace And next week we'll see that this new realm comes with a whole new way of life for human beings a way of life we need to adopt we need to be transformed by the grace of God shaped by it at every level and that will take some work that will take some changing of our mindset there's a new style of living that comes with this new city The power of sin has been broken, so we owe it no allegiance anymore. We are set free from sin to live new lives to the glory of God. Despite the presence of sin and death before us, the deeper reality is that we've been raised with Christ and are alive to God. Therefore, we don't let sin have its way with us. We don't live in Adamish ways anymore because we now live in Christ. We'll hear more about this next week, so do be sure to be here at the beginning of Romans chapter 6. But in this moment, we need to pause and take in the vast panorama of grace that is in front of us. In its overflowing, superabundant richness, we need to grasp just how different our life in Christ is from our old life in Adam and to believe that this is where we now live, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
3: You're rich in love and you're slow to wait.